Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as he always does during the recording of podcasts, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there. And uh, do you remember that TV show that was on many years ago, My Two Dads? Oh, I thought you were going to say Punky Brewster. Not that one. Yes, I do remember My Two Dads. When they asked us if we wanted to do a Father's Day episode, we were trying to figure out how we could do something that related to tech stuff. And so Jonathan and I decided we wanted to talk about the fathers of the Internet. And as it turns out, there were two to some massive exponential power. We're yeah. going to be talking about a whole lot of fathers of the internet because, well, there were no two or one or, or seven people that were responsible for the internet as we know it today. There yeah. are tons and tons of people who worked on different aspects of the internet. Right. Yes. This is a, the internet is a thing that, that grew out of the contributions of Dozens and dozens of people. But uh, really, in order to kind of narrow our our scope a bit, we thought we would really concentrate on ARPANET, mm-hmm. which in itself is sometimes considered a father of the Internet because That's true. it's a predecessor of the Internet. It itself was not the Internet. It was, a, it was however, a network of computers, of, uh, uh, of heterogeneous computers. So in other words, they were not all the same type of computer, which was a big deal because uh, prior to the ARPANET, there really there was really no way of, of networking together various different models of computers because they all had their own proprietary languages that they worked on. And one computer's system was not necessarily compatible with any other computer system. Mm-hmm. To the Internet from ARPANET. Yeah, I am your father. Yeah. End of line. Yeah, um, yeah, it's that's not true. <laughs> it's not possible. Well, anyway, let me give you a hand. Th- that and oh, that and uh, the quote I know is not exactly accurate. That's um, true. But uh, <laughs> because someone will write in. Um, yeah, that that was the the big thing, and uh, there is a myth, if you will, that the ARPANET was designed by the United States government to create a defense network or a, a network to share information between different parts of the defense network, yeah. you know, real-life meat space network, um, to share information in the event of a uh, catastrophic attack of some sort to ferry information from one group to another. And that's not exactly true, although, hey, it is a nice reason. Um yeah. The, the government, different parts of the government were at that time looking for ways to share information between computers, and so were um, different parts of uh, university networks. And those were really the, the two uh, types of organizations that were really interested in networking computers back in those days. But they all had um, – if you are a regular Tech Stuff listener, you know that all these different kinds of machines back then were really very proprietary. You didn't have – um, you know, you didn't have a, a system uh, where you made computers and they would all run the same operating system like you do now uh, with Windows or, for example, or Linux. Um, even IBM systems, I'm sure, you know, the System mm-hmm. 360 
would run on a, a different operating system than a different kind of IBM computer because it was designed to run on uh, on that specific machine. And, of course, you had dozens and dozens of different computer manufacturers all making these machines. So, uh, you know, you had the problem of trying to communicate between uh, one and another. So right. you needed a protocol that would bridge the gap. Yeah, so let's take some steps back before we get into the development of that actual protocol because I think the journey there is pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to say that if you were going to network these machines, yeah. which was the goal, that would that would be one of the things right. you'd have to do. So, in fact, the one of the first people to sort of envision something that that kind of encapsulates what the Internet is but in a, in a smaller way mm-hmm. is uh, Vannevar Bush. Ah, yes. Yes. He was a, a, a very important fellow in the United States uh, history. He worked on the Manhattan Project. Yes. Which uh, we've talked about before. That was the project where uh, for a few beads we were able to build an entire city. Wait, no, I'm thinking of something else. Yes, yes, you are. That, w- that was actually Manhattan. Yeah. Um, uh, Bush was very involved with the Defense Department. Yes. In, during, during World War II. Yes. Um, a very very smart guy, and uh, he he helped with the Manhattan Project as well as as other projects. Um, and one of the things he really wanted to do, and you can read about this in an article in the Atlantic. It's still up on the website called "As We May Think." Yep, he um, he came up with well, he was a founder of Raytheon, mm-hmm. and he came up with this idea he called mm, microwaves. He called Memex. Mm-hmm. And Mimex, in his mind, it was going to be a microfilm-based machine because that was sort of the epitome of the technology at the time. And the idea being that he would have a database of all the information that he would ever need, an entire library of information, and also that he could create information on this system and that he would be able to access this information in a very natural way because the system itself would mimic the way people think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So – this was kind of a – or not, maybe not even mimic, compliment perhaps we'll say, compliment the way humans think. Right. So that way when you search for something, it would be able to bring back the relevant information to you and not just any information that just happened to have that term in it. We, you know, we talked about this in our, our episodes about semantic web and, and artificial intelligence. This, this whole idea of contextual – Information that a machine might be able to recognize. Now, this was something that he was just sort of theorizing about, but it was a very important element of what would go into uh, ARPANET and the Internet. Now, the, the next person I would talk about besides Bush is Joseph Carl Robnett Licklider, or JCR, or Lick to his friends. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny because I've read a paper that uh, Lick wrote, um, and – uh, <laughs> the, the, well, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of where Jonathan's going with this, but um, he, if you think, well, that this this machine, this Memex, um, would be able to call up any. Basically, you would you would take a document and take a photo of it and create a microfilm from that and store it, uh, because you know computers back then were were huge. They weren't um, reliable like they are now. They were giant. Um, so that was kind of impractical, and so are a large cabinets full of paper. So that was kind of the idea was, hey, I'll shrink this down into a size where I could just keep it in a desk and find stuff. Um, well, and, and you say, wow, that, that's remarkably like the Internet. 
Well, in a way, yes, it is. But it's also not that remarkable because Lick has said, or, or um, of course, I read this a long time ago, but I remember him saying in this, uh, this article that um, it's not an accident that the Internet sort of mimics the mimics. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it, the, the idea was so compelling to the, the early founders of the Internet, and they said, we like this. Yeah. Let's try to make this happen with the technology we have. Yeah, change it from theory to reality. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not completely an accident that what the Memex, um, the concept of the Memex is very much like a computer attached to the Internet and being able to pull up information. And so Licklider, he was working in uh, back in 1962. He was working at Bolt, Baranek, and Newman. Newman, which is uh, also better known as BBN. Mm-hmm. That's going to come up again in a little bit. Yes, it will. But he worked for BBN and then came up with an idea called – he was calling the Intergalactic Computer Network because mm-hmm. why think small? And this was the idea of being able to network computers together so that you are able to share information between machines in a very efficient way because, you know, the 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 – the challenge was that you had all these really smart people working on, at the time, very sophisticated machinery. But all of their work was siloed. All of that work was contained within the physical r- building that that machine was in. Yeah, if you want to share that, that means you have to box that up and send it. Yeah, or you, or you had to go and truck. visit. You had to you had to yourself plan a trip out to wherever that machine was and, right. and share information that way. There was no way of sending it electronically at all. And so, I suppose you could call somebody and read it to them. But that's still, I mean, that's electronically <laughs> still a only pain buggy. in the neck. But the intergalactic computer network was this idea that you would be able to actually have computers communicate with one another and share information. Well, he became the head of computer research program at the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is ARPA. And, and he became the head of that in 1963. And he began – he renamed the computer research program the Information Processing Techniques Office or IPTO, IPTU. And um, uh, the Advanced Research Projects Agency is now known as DARPA. We added a D on that. Um and it's part of the Department of Defense, which is where that whole concept of they wanted to create a network that could withstand a catastrophic failure um, sort of came from. And it came from because there were there were movements within the United States government to try and create something like that. But that was not the purpose of ARPANET, um, uh, which would grow out of uh, Linklider's um, projects. Now – Linklider, ta- Licklider, rather, talked to several other people and kind of talked about his his concept of this uh, intergalactic computer network, and got them really excited, and they sort of jumped on board and also helped champion the cause and get uh, funding, money, and partnerships with various research institutions to agree to try and make this become a reality. A couple of those people include uh, Ivan Sutherland, who was another uh, is another really remarkable guy in computer science history mm-hmm. because not only was he part of trying to get this network off the ground he also invented sketchpad which was an early graphical user interface sort of the the predecessor to things like windows and the mac operating system and really any operating system on any touch device 
kind of has, you know, you have to go all the way back to Sutherland to thank him for his work. He also was a pioneer in computer graphics. He was a pioneer in uh, augmented reality, mm-hmm. uh, in virtual reality. So he was, it's interesting because his, his, uh, focuses were on, uh, his foci were on a different area of computer science than network technology. But he was still very much interested in this. He became the director of IPTO in 1964 after Licklider left the program. So Licklider leaves before ARPANET begins. Uh, another person that Licklider talked to and got interested in this idea was Bob Taylor. And Bob Taylor became the director of IPTO from 1965 to 1969. And he was the one who actually sent out the request for quotation, the RFQ, for building out ARPANET. This was the project where they wanted to connect multiple computers together through a network and create the infrastructure that would make that possible. Now, this infrastructure would have to be able to work with various different kinds of computers and send information between them so that the different computers could understand what they were each one was saying. Because mm-hmm. like we had said before, these computers were working on proprietary operating systems that were not compatible. So they send out this request for quotation to 140 bidders. Now, most of the companies and research institutions that received the, these uh, RFQs thought that the whole idea was just too difficult, outlandish, impossible, mm-hmm. just not practical at all. They I'm sure res- quite a few of them probably said, why? Yeah. So they why res- would you want to do that? Exactly. There were some that did say why. Uh, they received responses from 12 of the 140 bids they sent out, or mm-hmm. requests for bids. Uh, and out of the 12, four of them were considered viable by ARPA. And it ultimately went down to a couple of different candidates. And the one that stepped out in the end was BBN, mm-hmm. which was awarded the bid on April 7th, 1969. Yeah, they're, they're a very interesting company, too. We don't want to get into too much depth. But they're sort of – I think they're sort of Raytheon-like in that they have done all kinds of different engineering projects – uh, over the years, and I always associated them with computing and the internet, but they, their history goes back quite a ways, um, and they did, they, they have done much, much more than just participate in this pro, uh, project. But they were certainly well suited because they were, were, um, electrical engineering experts, certainly. Yeah. And, uh, Taylor left IPTO, uh, because of the Vietnam War, actually, and, uh, Lawrence Larry G. Roberts stepped in. And uh, he was a program manager and office director at ARPA before he became the director of IPTO. And uh, he was someone who had uh, – who was leading a team within this uh, this department, within IPTO, mm-hmm. that was working on packet switching. Yes. Now, packet switching is something that was being worked on by various individuals throughout the entire world independently. So this was not necessarily when, – when I say that Larry Roberts and his team worked on packet switching, this is not where packet switching necessarily just comes from. There was a a, a pioneer in packet switching called Paul Baran mm-hmm. who was very much working on this as well as another person in the UK named Donald Davies. Yes. Um, also Leonard Kleinrock. Yes, who ended up working with uh, ARPANET. 
through UCLA because mm-hmm. UCLA was uh, the University of California at Los Angeles was one of the research facilities, one of the universities that became part of the initial ARPANET project. And so Kleinrock began to work through ARPANET, uh, not directly from ARPA itself, but through UCLA. Yeah, the three those three guys are are known really for creating the packet switching part of the internet, the concept behind packet switching on the internet, the way it's done. Um, and uh, Should actually, we give a quick overview of packet switching again. Um, well, I was going to get to that in just okay. a second. Um, actually, is a very uh, uh, very diverse team. Uh, Baran actually came from uh, from Poland. Um, and, uh, it's actually now in Belarus, but at the time it was in Poland. And, um, he, he had an idea of, uh, a network. Now, there, there are several different kinds of, of networks. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. you can have one computer in the center to which other machines connect, which is known as a centralized network. Yep. And then you can have a decentralized network. Um, if you think about, um, I think Napster kind of used that concept where you have uh, multiple servers, but the machines connect to those main computers, which are in turn connected to a main, main computer. Yep. Um, or, you know, there are many uh, important computers and lesser computers connect to those. But those that's a decentralized network. Um, but uh, but Paul decided that what he should do is create a or what we should use for this particular project is a, di- a distributed model. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way the, the internet works. Uh, it's, it's a network of networks and each computer has redundancies. Um, so what does that mean? So, uh, if we were using a decentralized network, um, and you sent an email to the net, to the main computer that your computer was hooked up to, but that computer was down, your email wouldn't get where it's going. Right. Um, in a distributed network, uh, there are multiple routes that that email can go. So the computer that you were supposed to send it to is down, but there's another way to go. So it goes through that computer and then from there to another computer, and it basically follows that path. Now, um, what they realized, these guys, were, were that this redundancy is good, but uh, they, they're actually using redundancy of redundancies on the Internet, the mm-hmm. network of networks, and said, okay, well, uh, it would be kind of cumbersome to send this all as one file. Yeah. And if we send it all as one file and it gets bogged down in the direction it was supposed to go, it's not going to get there. So they broke it into pieces called, uh, which they decided to call packets. Yes. And um, each packet is represented more than once. So let's say, just for the sake of convenience, that you send an email and that's broken down into 10 packets. Um, those 10 packets are sent to multiple locations. Uh, or through multiple locations to get to the end point. Yes. And uh, one way or another, those 10 packets are supposed to reach there and be reassembled on the other end in the correct order to complete the, the transmission. So the packets, uh, you know, if, if one of those computers is down, let's say, and packets three and seven are lost, they have also been sent to other computers in the path, and they will be reassembled in the correct order. Yeah. Um. And using using that method, uh, packet switching has become the way we send information over the internet, and that goes for tiny little files to great big chunks. So Larry Roberts had decided that this packet switching technology, which had was in its infancy at this point, 
was probably the best way to go when you're talking about having a networked series of computers and you want to get this information from one to another. Um, and so that's kind of the direction that the team went in. And uh, also the, the, the folks at the various institutions where the computers that were going to be connected together, uh, they also were working on this along with the folks over at ARPA. So let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about where these computers were. There, there were four initial host computers for ARPANET. Mm-hmm. All right, these four hosts were the four computers that were going to be connected together. Uh, one was at UCLA, and it was an University S- of California at Los Angeles. Yes, uh, it was an SDS Sigma Seven computer running the Sigma Experimental Operating System. Uh, then you had the University of California's uh, Color Fried Interactive Mathematics Center, which had an IBM 360-75 running on the uh, OS-MVT operating system. You had the University of Utah, which had a DEC PDP-10 hmm. computer with, uh, a, with the 10X operating system. The old deck machines. And then you had Stanford Research Institute. And they had an SDS-90 computer, which ran on the Genie operating system. So all four of these machines are different machines running different OSs. I'm sorry. Did, did you mention that two of those machines were made by the same company, yet they used completely different operating systems? No, I did not. And so then <laughs> uh, – yes, but that is true. There are two, two of them were made um, – were SDS computers, but both of them were running different operating systems. So yeah, even this, the, the same company's machines wouldn't necessarily talk to each other in the same way. That's true. And so those were the, those were the four institutes as well. So you've got UCLA, Stanford, University of California, uh, and, um, you've got University of Utah. Uh, now the team over at ARPA that was in charge of putting this together, um, actually, what happened was not really the team at ARPA, the team at BBN, because that was the company that won out the bid. Right. The team at BBN consisted of Frank Hart, who was the leader of the team, uh, Dave Walden, who was a programmer and uh, real-time systems expert. You had uh, Will Crowther, who was another programmer. Yep. You had Bernie Cosell, who was a debugger. So he was someone who would find all the stuff that's wrong with the programs that everyone else is making. You had shout out to Grace Hopper. <laughs> yeah, uh, you had Bob Kahn, who's a computer theory expert and an error control specialist, and also was uh, the guy they went to when it came to how do we send data across telephone lines. That was kind of his master purview. of network protocols. Yeah, you had uh, Severo Ornstein, who was a hardware specialist. Um, and you had another hardware engineer by the name of Ben Barker who joined the team uh, a little bit after the initial uh, uh, team got together. And uh, I, think that, I think that's everybody. I think I got everyone who was on the, uh, that initial team. Now, the approach they, they made was kind of interesting. You know, How do you create this network where these four computers that do not speak a common language, how can you get them to communicate with each other? And they came up with uh, a hardware and software solution. So uh, really it's a hardware and protocol solution. The hardware approach they took was to create interface message processors, imps. Yep. A guy named Mike Wing- Wingfield actually came up with the uh, the interface that would connect a computer to the imp. Yeah. So these are 
uh, these themselves are computers. These are, but these were unlike now the computers that we're talking about at these these colleges were those enormous computers that you think of in the old you know pictures from the sixties. A room full of computer. Now the imps were comparatively speaking much more simple than yeah. those. Yeah, I, I actually have a a photo um, from UCLA that shows uh, Kleinrock and a picture of an imp, which I'm going to show Jonathan. Um, mm-hmm. It's a uh, it, it kind of looks like a, a stereo amplifier, actually, built into a wall. It's yeah. it's not it's not very exciting to look at, but uh, very necessary at the time. Sir, these lights are blinking out of sequence. We'll give them the blink in sequence. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely a Star Trek computer. Yeah, where stuff blink, stuff what blinks and yes, beeps. yeah. So the the imps were designed to be the the go between. They're actually kind of like routers. They were gateways is what they were. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. you connected these physically to the host machines mm-hmm. with a serial connector, a proprietary serial connector. And Please. then the imps themselves would then connect to phone lines mm-hmm. uh, that, that had been leased for the project. Uh, and they could run at about 50 kilobits per second. That's the data transfer speed that they, they were capable of, of reaching. And uh, the original imps were um, Honeywell DDP 516 computers. And actually, I read an interesting, or I thought I thought it was a kind of a funny story. Ben Barker, when he joined the team, he was the, one of the hardware engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, they he re- they received the delivery of the Honeywell 516 computer to hook up to a host computer, and he wanted to test it. He wanted to run some code on it, and it didn't work. And then he realized nothing was working, and so he physically took the computer apart. And physically unwrapped the wires that were wrapped around pins and then reattached them to different pins because he figured out that it had been wired wrong. So he had to rewire the machine from the ground up in order to get it to work. Worked 16 hours a day until he got it to, to, to work properly. That wasn't one of the host computers. That was just one of the imps. So these imps... It's, it's surprising that he didn't just pitch the thing out the window. Yeah. Of course, I imagine that that would be kind of heavy. So these imps provide the interface uh, from a physical standpoint so that, you know, you would send a command to the imps. The imp would then send that command along to the imp connected to the the host computer you wanted to send messages to. And then that would uh, – imp would send its message to that host computer that would receive whatever the command was. Um, and there's a lot more to it than that, but that was the basic idea. And uh, – the protocol that first was used on ARPANET was called Network Control Program, NCP. Mm-hmm. That was actually used for quite a while. Yeah, uh, it was. Uh, it was not. It was not the most elegant protocol. It took a while, and it wasn't the most uh, flexible protocol either. But it was serviceable. It worked well enough so that it could create these connections between these different. Uh, computers. This, this, this was the set of rules that the computers had to follow in order for the communications to happen. And uh, uh, eventually, they started to add more stuff on top of the basic commands that were built into ARPANET at the beginning. Mm-hmm. All right. So those those other things included things like email and file transfer. That that mm-hmm. was built on top of NCP. Um, but NCP was kind of it was not the strongest foundation for that. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what took over NCP a little bit later. Um, anyway, 
So that was your basic design. And uh, did you do you have the story about the first message that was sent on ARPANET? So so uh, well, first I'll I'll say ARPANET gets connected uh, in 1969. Um, it's kind of funny. It actually it actually moved pretty quickly. Um, the the oh, contract was awarded in April, right? Mm-hmm. But the uh, the first connection was made later that year, uh, and th- in fact, all four of the hosts were connected by December fifth, nineteen sixty nine. So April, the contract's awarded. By December fifth, they've actually managed to create uh, the the connections that. Uh, that put these four hosts in communication with each other. Now, the first permanent link what went up on November 21st, 1969, and that link was between the imp at UCLA and the imp at Stanford Research Institute. Mm-hmm. The other two would join online before the end of the year. And the, uh, the first message was sent by a student, uh, Charlie Klein, who was a student at UCLA. Mm-hmm. And the first message was supposed was, to be. Was it asking? Was it asking for an extension for a term paper? No, no. Actually, it was. It was being su- supervised by Kleinrock at the time, so I'm pretty sure that that wouldn't have. He could have just turned around and asked. Dude, dude, my boss is reading over my oh, shoulder. He's LOL. Right here. <laughs> yeah. The, the first message was supposed to be login. All right. So he typed the L and he typed the O, and then the system crashed. So the very first message sent across ARPANET was. Low. It should have been hello, world. Yeah. yeah. I was just a little short of that. Which is, uh, you know, of course, the traditional greeting when you're first starting up a new program. Yeah. So anyway, that was the first message was low sent across. Uh, the, now, after about an hour of fiddling with the system, they got it back online and managed to actually do a remote login. So it was a successful test. Which uh, is sometimes shorter than the amount of time it takes me to log in once my system's crashed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and nothing uh, changes. Yeah, and so ARPANET was once once you get toward the end of 1969, the ARPANET was was working. Now that was a great uh, uh, achievement, but that was just the beginning. Uh, that's when we started seeing the various people working at these research institutes, as well as within ARPA and at BBN, build on things like. Email file transfer protocol uh, and that sort of stuff, where um, it became a way to expand the the features of ARPANET. Uh, in 1972, it was Ray Tomlinson who developed the electronic mail system for ARPANET. Yes, he's he's the one responsible for uh, finding new life for the at sign on your keyboard. Yeah, he he chose that as the symbol to join the names of the recipient and the host computer so that the the system would know what computer to send it to and then what user on that computer would get the message. Mm-hmm. And that's why our email addresses today have that at symbol on there. It's a carryover from that. Yes, yes, which I, I actually kind of like that he chose that particular symbol because uh, since it has the A in the center, it kind of helps – you know, newcomers recognize, you know, gives us a mnemonic device to go oh, at, at. Of course, uh, people have been trying to come up with the actual name for that thing uh, for many years. Um, and it's been hotly debated in some circles. Anyway, well, some circles. <laughs> there, there was also there was a student at UCLA who worked in Kleinrock's department. 
Who met, have I heard of this guy? Yes, you probably have. He met Bob Kahn at UCLA hmm. while Kahn was working on the ARPANET deployment. Could that be? Uh, this was a fellow named Vinton Cerf. Yeah, I didn't. Oh, yeah. yeah. Vint Cerf, yeah. You may know him from such things as Google. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully you know him from such things as the Internet. Right. So um, he, he started over at UCLA and then he moved to Stanford. And uh, and then he, in 1976, he actually went to work for DARPA itself. Mm-hmm. But he and Khan began to work together to start designing something that would replace – ultimately it would replace uh, the NCP protocols. Because, like I said, they, the NCP protocol worked well enough for initially connecting these computers together, but it lacked a lot of the, the, the flexibility that they needed once they started coming up with new things to add on top of just, uh, just communication protocols. Mm-hmm. So he and Bob Kahn began to work on what we now call TCP IP. Mm-hmm. And uh, the transmission control protocol on the Internet protocol. Uh, this was much more sophisticated compared to NCP, and it took some time to design it. Uh, and once it was designed, it took some time to transition to it. In fact, it wasn't until January 1st, 1983 that uh, NCP was officially retired mm-hmm. and ARPANET changed over to use TCP IP instead. And that, I think some people say that day, which they also call Flag Day, that that day marks the birth of the Internet mm-hmm. because that was when we started using the protocols that the Internet relies on in order to get you – know, it's the set of rules that we all follow or that all the machines follow in order to get information from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's funny because uh, it really – it's sort of – the birth of the Internet proper is, is sort of hard to uh, – uh, define in, in that way because, uh, you know, the, the drafts for TCP were predated that by 10 years. Yes. Um, the early seventies, 1973. Um, yeah. And, and Bob Kahn was working on a way of getting satellite data networks to connect to land-based networks. And that's kind of like the, the actual growth of the internet was sort of an, uh, a natural evolution of various communication networks connecting together. I mean, that is the Internet. It is a network of networks. And ARPANET became part of that in a way. So ARPANET itself was not the Internet. ARPANET was a predecessor to the Internet and in some ways was connected to other elements of the Internet. Um, but uh, a lot of the stuff that was developed within ARPANET would become the backbone of what, at least from a protocol standpoint, of what we think of as the internet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you're interested, there is a uh, a really uh, cool article called "How the Internet Came to Be" uh, that Surf wrote, and he gets into uh, the history of the ARPANET and the internet. Um, but it's really kind of kind of cool because it's written from an insider's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I found kind of interesting was that one, when they were working on it, um, the graduate students surf included, uh, this was such a high level project that, you know, a, a quote unquote lowly graduate student wouldn't be allowed to speak with authority. So, um, they had re- requests for comment. Yeah. Uh, basically saying, so what do you guys think? Um, so w- without treading on toes, um, people like, uh, 
Vince Cerf and the other people who we consider instrumental and, you know, internet experts were able to, uh, to speak their mind. And I think, um, you know, now we go, wow, they, they had to ask him to please comment on this. I yeah. mean, he's, he's like, you know, one of the, the, the people, but you know, it, it's just kind of funny how that works. And, uh, he also mentioned that, uh, as their work progressed, the, the military became more interested in using the network, uh, in the late 1970s again. Yeah, because again, you're talking about the ability to to communicate between centers very, very quickly, share information that could be, you know, pivotal to national security. So it was obviously something that the military would be interested in in, in taking advantage of these systems that were created for ARPANET, and either creating a, a separate military network, which was done, um, or adding on to existing networks, which was also done. And in fact, you could, there were windows from the internet into the military networks. Um, yeah, this was, this was sort of what gave rise to what we think of today as the internet. Now, ARPANET itself did not last forever. It was decommissioned on February 28th, 1990. Mm-hmm. And was, um, Vince Cerf had something to say about that. Oh, yes? Yeah, he wrote a poem. Okay. Here's, here's the poem Vince Cerf wrote uh, to honor the ARPANET when it was taken offline in 1990. He said, It was the first, and being first was best, but now we lay it down to ever rest. Now pause with me a moment, shed some tears for auld lang syne, for love, for years and years of faithful service, duty done, I weep. Lay down thy packet now, O oh friend, and sleep. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the funny thing was that uh, the ARPANET was... The, the forerunner of the internet and um, it, but what we learned from that the all the the people who were what we now consider the fathers of the internet basically what they learned from the ARPANET was um, the best technologies mm-hmm. to use in networking many many computers over long and short distances um, and you know the 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 ARPANET spawned uh, many different kinds of networks, one of which I used extensively in college, BitNet. Um, but, you know, there were Usenet and, and, and many others. Um, and these technologies, you know, are, are really the result of the ARPANET's, uh, influence as, you know, this, this primitive and later, you know, more sophisticated computer network. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely derive what is now the internet and the ability to uh, to switch packets and communicate with reliable protocols um, to to the efforts of, of these many 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 people uh, and and uh, many of those many many people have been awarded countless awards by governments around the world. They've received received um, honorary degrees by. Universities and other, uh, you know, other kinds of uh, accolades from all kinds of people for the work they've done in bringing the world together in, in communication. So I think that it it's only fitting that they also receive from us Happy Father's Day, fathers of the internet. We got you a goodie bag and a tie. <laughs> you'll you'll all have to share. It's a networked tie. Yeah, it's got. Lots you all of, have to wear it at the same time together. It's all got. It's just got zeros and ones all over. It's a binary tie. It's either it's either tied or not tied. <laughs> That's kind of binary. 
So anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's our discussion about ARPANET, the father of the Internet, if you will. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. If you guys have any suggestions for our topics you would like us to cover in future episodes, let us know. You can let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw or send us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?